Are you watching closely? Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? Bro, there's Smith, he's standing there. He's got the iceberg warning in his fucking hand. Excuse me, his hand. He's ordering more speed. Originally, I titled the Dropbox folder for this episode, Mary Sue Komiak, Nuclear Physicist. But that title was a late night joke I thought of when I should have been sleeping. It was reductionist far beyond the point I intend to make in what follows. Ulana Komiak is not a Mary Sue, is a nuclear physicist, and I do not intend to attack the character as she exists. But it is worth noting right away, Komiak is a character. She is a fictional stand-in for various other scientists that worked beneath, around, alongside Valeri Legosov. You might be lost right now, if you happened upon this and have not watched HBO's Chernobyl. My recommendation? Go watch all five episodes, then come back. For the record, my enjoyment of Chernobyl as good TV ranged from loved in episode one to rather enjoyed in episode five. That transition is integral to what I want to talk about today. I do not mean to criticize Chernobyl specifically, but to use Chernobyl as an example of something that bothers me about the telling of true stories on screen, I suppose. It's the simplest way of putting it. Inevitably, you're writing an adaptation of a book or a true story, you have to change things. One story fits one medium because it is put together for that medium. Real life does not fit any medium because it is real life. But. Let us turn to Chernobyl here. Craig Nazan's scripted opening with Legosov. What is the cost of lies? It's not that we'll mistake them for the truth. The real danger is that if we hear enough lies then we no longer recognize the truth at all. What can we do then? What else is left but to abandon even the hope of truth and content ourselves instead with stories? In these stories, it doesn't matter who the heroes are. All we want to know is who is to blame. Mason tells Emily Vanderwerf at Vox, 4th June, The thing about truth is, in its best version, it's not narrativized. And it's not viral. What you can do, though, is attract people to a truth through something that is narrative or viral, and say, in all honesty, what you have seen is sort of, kind of the truth. But look at all this other stuff. That's why I'm doing the Companion Podcast. Interrupting the quote to tell you the five podcast episodes about the five series episodes are fantastic, supplementary, explanatory material. Back to the quote. The last thing I ever wanted to say to people was, now that you've watched this, you know the truth. No, you don't. You know some of the truth, and you know some of the stuff that's been dramatized. For instance, Lagasov was not in the courtroom. Interrupting the quote again, because this one blew my mind. I knew from the after-episode material for episode 2 that Komnyuk was not real. I know from experience, many a true story on film, that events will get shifted around in the timeline, characters will get combined and recombined, details will be simplified, but this one, that Lagasov was not in the courtroom, means that episode 5, the reason I wanted to produce something about this series in the first place is even more the thing I did not like it being. But I will get to that shortly. Back to Mason. The truth is, he was not there. But I can't tell that story without him being there because nobody's going to want to watch that. I disagree, obviously. They know this guy. They want to hear from him. 
but it's important then for me to go on the podcast and say, okay, but in reality, here's the real truth, truth, which is not narratively interesting. So in the context of what you've seen, you're now interested in going further and getting more, and that stuff is not a story. That stuff is just truth. Interrupting again. Because the communication studies major in me wants to insist that these things are fact, not truth. But his distinction makes sense enough in context, and is not the point. And ideally, through this, we start to maybe find a new way to present things to people where we're not so worried as artists that people are going to question whether or not we quote-unquote got it right. We can't get it right. We can only get it sort of right. That's the best we can do. But if we can share everything else, including things that challenge or undermine the narrative we presented, because we are dealing with an imperfect process that boils two years down into five hours, then I think they will appreciate what we do more, not less. Maybe the distinction of truth versus fact does matter here. Whether a fictional story can, as Mazin puts it, get it right, as I would put it, can a fictional story tell the truth while still blurring fact? The success of Chernobyl overall proves that a fictional story can, but we will get there, and we will get to Mary Sue. Not really. On the Companion podcast, Craig Mazin explains that he took an enormous dramatic license here, out of necessity. I could have absolutely portrayed this trial exactly as it unfolded. But that would not be television. Television shortens investigation, shortens trial, shortens timeline, squeezes whole stories into episodic, relatively easy to digest, compartments. Back to Mason. With other people, but we wouldn't have known who they were, and we wouldn't have cared. He introduced Komyuk in episode 2. Introduced Pavel in episode 3. Really not until 4. Introduced Bacho in 4. Mason is not above introducing major characters late into the story. Which really... It's time to turn backward. Still HBO, but 21 years ago, from the Earth to the Moon. 12 episodes, one shared subject, the Apollo space program. And consistent production elements, consistent cast, but different combinations of writers and directors, different focuses. One episode deals entirely in the design of the lunar module. One episode focuses on the astronauts learning geology so they can obtain better lunar samples. It doesn't offer a singular cohesive story over the course of its 12 episodes, but it does paint a cohesive picture out of its 12 parts. Characters come into and go out of the story. We might see one for just an episode, but that doesn't mean that character doesn't matter, isn't memorable, isn't important. Maybe I just wish Chernobyl was longer. I think of not just From the Earth to the Moon, but also, say, War and Remembrance. Twelve episodes, but amounting to somewhere around 27 hours, versus From the Earth to the Moon's twelfth. Ten years earlier, 1988, I'm 12 years old, not the target audience for a 27-hour miniseries, so long that it's aired during November sweeps, takes a break, and then comes back for May sweeps, about World War II. I am riveted. When some cable channel or another reruns 1983's The Winds of War, if you don't know either of these miniseries, both are based on very dense novels by Herman Wilk. War and Remembrance was a continuation of the characters and stories from The Winds of War. The Winds of War had seven episodes, somewhere around 14 hours in total, and I loved it. We had to read a thousand pages a quarter at the private school I attended, and I read these books two quarters in a row. Maybe this is my thing. You have five episodes, or I suppose Mason started writing this before he had a specific production deal, but I don't get the impression he ever expected to be writing something significantly longer. You must turn the story, however complex, into a cohesive whole. So you invent details, you amalgamate characters, you narrativize the history because the story is easier. But is this a good thing? Komyuk is a fictional character, 
Neither Legasov nor Sherbina were at the Chernobyl trial in July of 87. This means that almost every element of the structure of Episode 5 of Chernobyl is invented. Kolmyuk is not a Mary Sue. She is not some writer's fantasy self-injection into the events. She is an arguably necessary evil of storytelling like this. But then she should be more of a sounding board for Legasov. And there should be push and pull. She should not immediately be right about everything she does. In her introductory scene, she figures out that something is wrong at a nuclear plant. Spoiling in here. Ain't never wrong. Leak? No. It would have gone off before. It's coming from outside. The Americans? ID-131. It's not military, it's uranium decay. U-235. Reactor fuel. ID. Could it be a waste dump? Hmm. We'd be seeing other isotopes. Nuclear test? Ah. Uh. You kind of bomb? We'd have heard that's what half our people work on here. Something with a space program, like a satellite, or... No one's answering the phone. This is fine. Hell, at this point, watching the series, we do not know, if this is our first time delving into any details about Chernobyl, that Komuk is fictional. So this plays as a perfectly reasonable character introduction. And I've loved Emily Watson since her feature debut in Lars von Trier's 1996 film Breaking the Waves, along with Stellan Skarsgård, by the way. So she is a welcome addition to this story. She heads to Chernobyl and arrives to immediately correct Legasov's assumptions and to help avoid a disaster. I know that your reactor core is exposed. I know the graphite's on fire, the fuel is melting, and you're dropping sand and boron on it, which you probably thought was smart, but you've made a mistake. Olana Yurevnyo Humyuk, chief physicist... Belarusian Institute for Nuclear Energy, and your Valery Alexeyevich Legasov. Smothering the core will put the fire out, but the temperature will eventually increase. It Believe will melt me, down. I'm perfectly aware, but I estimate at least a month before it melts through the lower concrete pad, which gives us time. No, you don't have a month. You have approximately two days. Yes, the fuel would take a month to reach the concrete pad here. But first going to burn through the biological shield here by Tuesday. And when it does, it's going to hit these tanks, bubbler pools, reservoirs... Reservoirs for the ECS. I understand your concern. But I confirmed it with plant personnel. The tanks are nearly empty. No, they were nearly empty. Each of these points here, here, and here all drain to the bubbler pools. I'm guessing that every pipe in the building ruptured, and then there are those fire engines that I saw on the way in. Fire hoses are still connected. 
They've been gushing water into the structure this whole time. Tanks are full. Tanks are full. The disaster that could have resulted from the meltdown would have cost so many more lives, would have altered the political structures of the world, and this fictional account lays the responsibility for avoiding it onto a fictional character. In terms of narrative, maybe this is what you do? In terms of history, this borders on irresponsible. Yes, we want the audience to take an interest and find out more on their own, and the post-show material on HBO and the companion podcast both tell us that Komyuk is not real. But how many people don't stick around for such things? Don't go anywhere near a podcast. How many people watch the series, are horrified, and then move on without much further thought? Episode 5 offers some hangover text about the real people and what happened to them, but again, I fear that a large portion of the modern television audience pays little attention. When it comes to Chernobyl, they already know that Legasov killed himself two years after the explosion. They already know that Sherbina is sick and will die soon. <sighs> I will resist the urge to go on a separate rant about the cheap and a storytelling device far more than any realistic depiction, visual, of Sherbina's blood on his handkerchief in episode 5. Blood from the Mouth has its own TV trips page, and if you want to hear me talk about it, find my Minute 11 episode of Annihilation Minute, for he had slipped into his glass at lunch a few drops of something. It's a cheap visual device that movies and TV shows use to demonstrate illness, except Sherbina is, at this moment, July 1987, probably not as sick as the visual usually indicates. He will not die until August 1990. But this other rant I am avoiding, or abbreviating, at least, points out the problem I had with the whole of Chernobyl. Episode 1, I'm riveted. I am eager to watch the other four episodes right after, which I managed to do, by the way, as I came to the show four weeks late. The HBO line, it's not TV, it's HBO, feels apropos. Episode 2, more of the same. I'm riveted, I'm horrified. And in terms of real-world application, I'm horrified on a secondary level when I briefly imagined President Trump in that conference room having to make decisions about a disaster with the potential scale of this one. Episode 3, time is less compressed, the story is slowing down, deliberately and appropriately, and I like it. Episode 4 offers up a side story with Pavel and Bacho, a wonderful side story, but looking backward later, it is part of what makes me wish that this miniseries had more time to tell this story. Episode 5 comes, and I will not know until the next day that Lugasov and Shubina were not in the courtroom, but it already feels more generic. It's not HBO, it's TV. The entirety of the trial feels like it lasts for just this bit that we see. These three men on trial are sentenced to work camps over less than an hour of trial. A necessary evil of dramatizing a courtroom, I suppose. And Legasov's explanation of how the nuclear plant works is awesome, don't get me wrong. But the courtroom scenes feel like a different series than the flashbacks to the night of the explosion. And this courtroom sequence is purely fictional. Legasov wasn't there, Sherbina wasn't there, Komyuk didn't even exist. Give me a disappointing film. That's one thing. It's a singular disappointment. When a series or a miniseries begins as something superb. In a previous episode here, I talked about the final season of Game of Thrones and some poor storytelling choices therein, for example. And it becomes something more generic. It is something else. The disappointment is not singular. And it makes me wary to jump onto other new series. Imagine more episodes. Imagine that we get several scientists instead of just Komyuk. We get debates over cleanup choices. We get more scenes of witnesses talking about what happened, with maybe more details taken from books, like voices from Chernobyl. We have more characters, but we get to know them, because we can be trusted to have an attention span beyond a handful of main characters. 
In the end, I gave Chernobyl 9 out of 10 on IMDb because I was moved. I was enraged. I was saddened by the details of its story. But I imagined the larger, longer version, and I imagined myself moved so much more. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a Mandalorian. Why would you create such an abomination? This is the weapon of a coward. The, uh, it's a past stuff that dreams are made of. Cut. That's a wrap. It's over, Johnny. It's over! Nothing is over! Nothing! You're still here? You just don't turn it off! It's over. Go home. Go.